0: Georgia's DBHDD is urging people to ask a pharmacist about getting naloxone for their first aid kits at home or work. No prescription is needed. Naloxone can rapidly reverse an opioid overdose and restore breathing. Opioidresponse.info.
1: Thank you all for being with us for Political Rewind today. I'm Bill Nygut, and uh, it's a big day. Uh, in politics, because, of course, we have the first Democratic presidential debate, the first of two tonight, and then a second one tomorrow night. We're going to talk about that as the show goes on with our panel gathered here. And uh, there's all sorts of news to talk about in state politics, things that are happening on Capitol Hill, follow-ups to shows and stories we've done earlier in the week. So let's get right to it. Kevin Riley, you're usually with us on Tuesdays. You... Could not join us yesterday because, as editor of the Atlanta Journal-Constitution, you have many responsibilities, and our listeners uh, insisted that we get you on as soon as possible. I'm glad you're with us today.
2: Well, buddy, as Buddy Darden always says, I guess I'm back by popular demand,
1: right? Yeah. <laughs> Thank you for being here today, Kevin. We really do appreciate it. Greg Bluestein is off uh, in uh, on the West Coast somewhere, I think, with his family, enjoying a well-deserved time. I didn't think you gave your people vacations. You know they uh, they are entitled to lots of vacation, but they're
2: so dedicated. I worry that sometimes they don't yeah. take as yeah, much Blue as they Steen's deserve. Yeah, a
1: great example of that. That's for sure. Right next to you, if you're watching us on Facebook Live, you will realize this, and you can do that by going to G P B News on Facebook. <laughs> Amy Steigerwald, you've been gone. We've missed you for a couple of weeks now. You were thank you off on vacation in some exotic destination. Where were you?
0: Yes, we we did a little tour of Italy, yeah. and then because it was much cra- Cooler. We went up to Copenhagen.
1: Oh, how was that?
0: I love Copenhagen. Yeah. It's super fun. We kayaked through the canals, my son and I going in between other boats and stuff. It was super fun.
1: I think Hans Christian Anderson used to kayak in the canals. So Probably go. so. <laughs> Amy, of course, is a political science professor at Georgia State University, and we really are glad you're back with us. Also back with us, after being all over the country, Republican strategist Heath Garrett. Heath, you were out working with clients in the 2020 election cycle, among other things. Um, Aside from people you're dealing with here in Georgia, where do you have people that you're working with in this cycle?
3: Well, our firm, we have clients in uh, New York, uh, Arkansas, Missouri, Mississippi, and even looking at a few clients out West. Yeah. Anybody
1: so, special that we would all recognize? Are these uh, legislative? Are they congressional uh, challenge races? Are they incumbents?
3: A lot of them are state house. I mean, you know, yeah. U.S. House representatives okay. around the country that a lot of folks in Georgia might not recognize their name. Okay. Uh, Mitt Romney is one of our clients. And, of course, Johnny yeah. Isaacson and other yeah. folks gearing up. Believe it or not, the 2022 cycle is already being discussed. Um uh, I, you know,
1: you just said something that demands a question now. Johnny Isaacson, 2022. Are you gearing up for a 2022 campaign? Are you ready to break news about that here on the show?
3: Well, Senator Isaacson has said he plans on running for re-election. Okay. He filed his papers the day after the last election. Amazing okay. Okay. money. So. All right.
1: I, thank you for uh, filling us in on that. And joining us for the first time, and we're really glad you're here, Representative David Dreyer, Democrat whose district is, you're right in the city of Atlanta, uh, pretty much, yeah? That's right. I, I live in Grand Park and got a lot of
4: southeast Atlanta and going up towards uh, Ponce Highlands and Inman Park. You were first elected
1: in 2016, That's right. so you've survived one election cycle past that. I have. Uh, I have
4: and feel like I made a difference the uh, last three years during session.
1: Yeah. You uh, went to Georgia
4: State, is that right? Yeah, Georgia State Undergraduate. undergraduate. Mm-hmm. And, and, and turned at the Capitol, um, <laughs> kind of got me on this path, and then uh, went to Emory Law.
1: All right. Thank you for being here today, David. We're glad to have you here. Great to be here. Uh, let me start. We we did almost an entire show on Monday about um, conditions at the border, hmm. about the latest news on the immigration front, uh, and President Trump uh, saying, insisting for a while that he was going to start rounding up, have his, his uh, ICE agents start rounding up. As he said, millions of uh, undocumented immigrants. He ended up putting that on hold. But in the meantime, we got these reports of deplorable conditions at, at more than one, actually, detention center for young people down along the border. And so the, the country's attention really has, Amy, been focused on, on the border in a lot of ways this week. Yesterday, the um, House... Just, I think I just, I think we all, are we still on the air because we all just lost our headphones? Okay, we'll keep going. Uh, If you lost your headphones and you're on the panel, you're welcome to take them off. Amy, uh, the House passed on an almost entirely partisan vote yesterday a bill which sends some $4.6 billion to the border. For humanitarian purposes, it, it was, as I said, almost all Democrats who passed this measure. Um, and here's what Nancy Pelosi said about it. She said, this bill is a spending measure, not a policy plan. This isn't an immigration bill. It's an an appropriations bill to meet the needs of children. But they put a lot of restrictions into this bill. And President Trump's already made it clear he's not happy with the House version of the bill. There's a Senate version we can talk about as well. But go.
0: Uh, Well, I think part of what's going on is there's a couple of different things that are in this bill. One of the big ones is almost $3 billion for the Office of Refugee Resettlement, which is what is helping provide the necessary materials uh, to be able to house the people that are in various places and to ensure that there is, in fact, bedding and and soap and food. Um, And they're about to run out of money. So that's sort of the big thing that this bill is about, is sending money to them so that they don't run out of money, because, of course, we need to be providing Uh, sort of daily substance to people that are there. The other thing is that there's also being money asked for, though, for immigration enforcement, for the possibility of building or at least um, constructing new places to hold people. And that's where you start to get to the real debates between especially the House and Senate bills, that the House bill is in particular trying to put restrictions on money going, for example, to the Department of Defense um, or going to Immigrations and Custom Enforcement as opposed to money uh, only towards the Office of Refugee. Resettlement. Uh, that's
1: really important, Heath. The, the House measure was Lord. strictly for, they said, humanitarian needs, not for immigration raids, not for detention beds, certainly not for a border wall. And if I can, and then let you comment on this, sure. Heath, they are the, the measure they finally passed, and it was only because some of the more liberal members of the Democratic Caucus were ready to revolt against Pelosi on this one. They were really skeptical about giving money that they worried Trump could use in the, for the wrong reasons. They added a bunch of other safeguards. Uh, uh, to the bill, but why don't you talk and then we'll we'll go into
3: those. No, I think the, I think this bill and I think what happened in the House is just a, uh, an unfortunate, you know, extension of our failed immigration policies over the last three decades, if you will, in the country, uh, it showed that there's no even coalition amongst all Republicans or all Democrats, right? This bill bobbed and weaved its way through and had to, quote, in theory, in the language of Washington, D.C., buy off kind of the liberal wing of the Democratic Party in order to get passed along those partisan lines. Uh, it is a humanitarian. So what she, they basically did is they took the bulk of what had basically been negotiated by Republicans and Democrats, uh, leading to a potential conference, and they had to strip out ice enforcement beds and a few other things that the Trump administration really wanted and that flexibility. Uh, it shows you the hyper-partisan nature of, of what we're dealing with in trying to solve this. Uh, Speaker Pelosi's correct. This is not, and nor was, is anybody intending for it to be the comprehensive immigration fix, but the Trump administration and Republicans do want some additional enforcement, and they're trying to send signals to stop the incentive to actually rush the border, which is helping create the crisis we have down there now. So the the good news, I think, for the country is that the Senate, out of the Appropriations Committee, passed uh, 30 to 1 along an extremely bipartisan margin. We don't see that very often in the U.S. Senate, 30 to 1, Republicans and Democrats, a similar bill with slightly more money with a little more flexibility on how to spend it.
1: But that bill, too, uh, I mean, now what we have is two bills uh, right. g- headed towards a collision. And the worst thing about that, I think, Kevin, is uh, the senators, sen- the Senate, in their bipartisan uh, effort, believe that if their bill, if the House would just pass their bill, this money could be on its way. Uh, but the House wants these safeguards. And they it's also a- have some demands in the House bill. For instance, uh there's, the bill requires uh, Customs and Border Protection to establish plans and protocols to deliver medical care, improve nutrition and hygiene, train personnel to ensure health and safety of children and adults in custody um, and there are other provisions that children can only be held for a certain period, a brief period of time before being placed in uh, better conditions. So and I don't, the House is not easily going to uh, give up any of this, especially because the liberal wing is pushing them. Right. I mean,
2: I, I would love to know what others think, uh, in particular our, our, our true political operatives that we have here. But... To me, um, of course, the situation is such at the border, it appears that it's just untenable, and there are no quick or easy solutions. And as Heath points out, it's been building for decades, and we're really in a mess now. But I think it will ultimately come down to who's going to end up owning this mess. I mean, that's what you see happening. Like, uh, the House is now in the spot where we've passed a bill, and we insist that everything be only humanitarian. Uh, that's not a bad spot to be in, mm-hmm. I mean, when you think about it, uh, in the way the public is likely to look at this, because the public's going to be disinterested and sort of bored about another big debate about immigration policy. But everybody can understand a kid who needs money and a needs food, money, uh, clothes
4: and a place to sleep. Right. And toothpaste on top of that. I mean, I I really appreciate the debate that the Democrats in the House had this Um, Speaker Pelosi and others came to the point of these are children without soap, without toothpaste, with nothing to sleep on and no blankets. We need to help them. But another wing of the of the Democratic Party said, this policy towards the border has been so punitive. It's included dehumanizing immigrants, accusing folks of crimes that never occurred. And this is a slippery slope, and we don't want to do anything to support this. So, so I really think that from the perspective of, of an elected Democrat that the debate was right where it needs to be. It's, it needs to be standing up for human beings and children and trying to dignify people and come up with a good policy in an immediate state make sure that children get what they need to survive. But
2: we still don't know if it'll play that way to the public. I mean, this thing is playing out. Media coverage hasn't quite settled in, and it may come out that way, it may not. Right, Heath? No, I'm,
3: I'm more optimistic on the Senate version, right, because the Senate version has all the humanitarian in it. But the American public also knows that, that our failed system without enforcement, right, and without some of the other things that are in this package, all you're doing is kind of punting the ball another, uh, you know, 30 yards down the field, and we're going to be back doing this again in six months. And so I think that when the Senate passes the current bipartisan piece of legislation that has humanitarian and a few other fixes in it, I think that Senator McConnell and the Senate are going to be in pretty good shape with public opinion of the American people to say, "Hey, we've got a bipartisan solution here," and so we've heard a lot of talk about that. We've produced something from Republicans and Democrats, and that's going to put the House in a pretty interesting box. Now they'll get some; they've got a good bargaining position on some of these additional accountability measures. So I think in the conference that'll get worked out. Amy,
0: well, I'm just I'm curious, particularly for sort of Heath's view on this, that like simultaneously though you've got members of the House Freedom Caucus, particularly Mark Meadows, who's trying right. to convince Trump that he should veto all of these bills, including the Senate one. That the Senate one isn't harsh enough; that it's not enough about enforcement. They actually right. want to strip out all the humanitarian parts. So, do we have any idea of, I guess, also where the president is even listening? Well, I mean, will you he also sign
1: let's add to that the Senate bill. Let's add to that not only Meadows in the in the Freedom Caucus, but on the Senate side, Rand Paul oh, yeah. saying to the White House, unless you are willing to strip out money (laughs) from another Budget line to right. pay for this 4.6 yep. billion dollars. I'm going to vote against it, and the pre- so I think Amy asks a good question.
3: Yeah, no, I think the I think the extremes in both caucuses, mm-hmm. right, are definitely locked down and would prefer nothing to happen. And then they can yeah. they would argue over principle. I would suggest there's some politics involved in that. Mm-hmm. Uh, I do think that it's a good sign that there is this kind of again the, the role of the Senate is to kind of be the saucer and cool things down, mm-hmm. the emotions of the House. Uh, Again, I can't emphasize how rare it is in the modern context for a Senate committee to pass something 29 to 1 in that level of a bipartisanship. It's the Democratic senators who are saying that that makes the Senate version the working document that we have to work off of in order to solve the problem and get something passed.
1: David. Heath uh, used the expression correctly, hyperpartisan, which mm-hmm. is what this uh, measure has turned. As so many of the issues are involving immigration, not to mention virtually everything else, mm-hmm. there they've debated on the Hill uh, has been. But just to give you an example of that and let you comment on it, Doug Collins who is increasingly playing a very important role in the Republican conference. He has become a really strong leader, given his position as a ranking member of judiciary and the other responsibilities he has. And of course, he's Georgia congressman. Here's what he said in a release about the House bill. He said H.R. 3401, the number of the measure, Uh, proves that Democrats are not serious about fixing this crisis. The bill provides no funds for ICE detention, so migrants will remain in custody at uh, short-term CBP, uh, Customs and Border Patrol facilities, for even longer periods of time until ICE has room for them. Democrats know eventually that CBP will have to start releasing all migrants into America's interior in the same way they are currently releasing family units uh, he also says it's the camel's nose under the tent toward killing family detention altogether because of restrictions included in the bill. But in, in many ways, the money uh, statement is after months of claiming there is no border crisis, Democrats have finally admitted the situation demands action. Yet instead of providing sensible funding and closing the loopholes, they offer a flimsy Band-Aid. Look, Doug Collins is argue, argues well for his point of view, Uh, there are things that he says that certainly are worthy of attention. When he says that Democrats are finally acknowledging there's a border crisis, I think it's fair to take issue with that. I think everybody on Capitol Hill and in the White House and in the administration, recognize there's a crisis we just have differing views of what the real crisis is
4: well absolutely and the framing of that goes back to what's been happening since president trump was elected letting migrants into the interior of our country these are human beings. Let's not forget, these are men, women, and children. Non-native-born people in the United States commit crimes at lower rates. That's uh, a Fox News study that was presented several years ago. I just The the scare tactics make it hard. But then the second point is, um, if, if there's a crisis on the border right now, and I think we do agree there is, it was created by this presidential administration. And it was created because of trying to show how tough we were, following up on scare tactics about about people that are seeking to come to this country like my grandfather did, without documents, looking for a better life. Um, So I I do have sympathy for some of these people. I do think we need to do it the smart way. But when you're talking about not funding ICE, ICE was proposing just a couple days ago of, of massive raids across the country that would pick up potentially both parents while the kid's in school, um, splitting up families on a massive level, stuff that a, a lot of people would consider to be immoral. So, yeah, I understand why people have a hard time supporting something like that.
2: When, when I try to think about something like this playing out, and this is a very media point of view, Heath, I admit, it, it, think about what's really going to happen here. This is going to drag on. And there will be these policy debates and people firing back and forth about which bill should be passed. But in the meantime, these stories in terms of what's happening to these kids will only get worse. And there will only be more of them. And they will only be more gut-wrenching because that's what always happens. So the question becomes, as that pressure builds and builds and builds, who's going to hold the bag in this one?
3: And I think, look, this issue is so into the water table on both sides. I think this is a absolutely a 50-50 issue in this country. I hear what you're saying, and that is the natural proclivity of the media to only focus on that. However, I think this issue is so well ensconced that th- you can be sympathetic and compassionate to the human beings, yet sustain both politically, legally, morally, and ethically the idea that it's immoral to say we're just going to let any number of people into this country who are coming and rushing the border and, and the system we have. We, there's no doubt there's a tremendous amount of sympathy on the Republican side, on the president's side. This president's actually the best opportunity the Democrats have to getting a good deal on comprehensive immigration reform that we've had, uh, but we can't get past the rhetoric. And I readily acknowledge that his rhetoric is is just as stark as the Democrats. When when the president
1: repeats, and he did it again just this week, and he does it often, that Democrats are for open borders. Is that correct? Well, I think, you know, what 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 do do you you think he means by open borders? I think
3: that it's just that, right? If you're not willing to enforce the laws, as they are in the United States, on the border, and you have... Uh, a group of people particularly organized crime and other human traffickers who are using that and mules to bring people into the united states knowing they're going to be released into the united states of america and they're overwhelmingly not going to show back up for their hearings in relation to asylum you've essentially got open borders amy you're shaking your head Uh, uh, do you you have a difference 90 percent of asylum seekers do not No, no,
0: they do show up that's the The, ice numbers that were released yesterday from a report that the numbers are the the lowest numbers that they reported are about 82 percent uh that show up as opposed to not show up when you have legal representation the number is goes between 99 percent to 100 percent
3: you know i think we're looking at different numbers right and so i think that those are the ones released by
0: the government so i was going with them
3: well no i mean
1: all right Let let me let me put a pause on that part of the conversation, um, because I want to we're going to have to take a break in a second. Um, uh, But but I do want to ask you uh, about this, David. Um, Part of the question here and, and, you know, we thought we were going to see raids in Atlanta last mm. weekend. The feds kind of tipped their hand to news organizations, to others, which is unusual because if anything, ICE likes to do these things without any advance notice. And yet they, uh, a, lot of, a lot of us got word that we should be prepared for them. And then the president called him off. But what, let's talk about the, Kevin Riley's paper reported on the fear that spread through the Hispanic community uh, about this. And um, even though we do have a lot of undocumented immigrants here, uh, the question becomes, what, how is that fear helpful to anybody in terms of w- figuring out what we do next on this problem? It,
4: it's. It's terrible, it's not helpful to anybody. I've been on text change starting Saturday night when we were worried about these raids. Worried about children that are in school with my kids. Children that are in school in the high school that's two miles from me and their families being split apart. And trying to get people to take a breath, know their rights, but it's been absolutely terrifying, not just to adults, but to a lot of kids that are worried about their parents being removed and being left all alone um, in a country that they
1: don't know that well. All right, I, I do have to get to a break. Before I do, Kevin, uh, for a long time it felt as if people were not paying attention to immigration in the way that, in a big, dramatic way, that it wasn't one of the top issues on the um, minds of voters or the public. Uh, and yet this week, Gallup released a poll which said two things were interesting. Number one, 70-some percent of the people they talked with said they do favor, uh, they, they do like immigrants coming into the country. They favor immigration c- to continuing. But it, in a, being asked about a top issue in the 2020 election cycle, 23 percent said immigration is the issue. That's the highest it's ever been. In a Gallup poll, well, I think it's it's climbing
2: and and will continue to climb because a it's obviously in the news so much and b it's actually affecting more and more parts of the country. I mean, if you roll back six, seven, eight years you could isolate a few places as the main spots where immigration was a big deal but now it's almost anywhere you go there's some form or some version of it that, Are, that they're dealing with
1: I apologize I do have to get you to break. Heath I, I put that pause that other part of the conversation because Heath is now searching to see if, why he? he, he, he right, it, it, it out of alignment.
3: With, if you take asylum seekers from all the other nations around the, the country, then you're getting those high numbers, right? So oh. I think that's a, a okay. Statistic. That's why we have to be careful about using statistics. Oh, okay. <laughs> we got to stay away from sta-
1: stats. On this we got to stay away from <laughs> data.
3: That, those facts they get
1: in the way. This is political rewind. We'll Go be ahead. right back.
5: GPB brings you insights and connects you with your community and our world. In these final days of our fiscal year, which ends on June 30th, I hope you'll make a gift of support to help keep GPB and the programs you hear going strong. And right now, your contribution will be doubled thanks to a generous challenge from Pembroke Advanced Communications, Mariana Height, and Elizabeth Norman. Go to gpb.org and click Donate at the top of the page. And thanks. On the next Fresh
0: Air, before it was understood what AIDS was or how it was spread, Dr. Paul Volverding and Nurse Cliff Morrison were treating AIDS patients at San Francisco General Hospital. The ward they worked on became a model for other AIDS units across the country and is the subject of the new documentary, 5B. We'll talk with them about those days. Join us.
2: Fresh air is this afternoon at 3 here on GPB and online at gpbnews.org or ask your smart speaker to play GPB
1: just put a period on our conversation in the last segment about immigration. uh, Two things we're going to watch for uh, moving forward. Number one, can the House and the Senate find a way to resolve the differences in their bills? I think many people believe that's going to be incredibly difficult to do. And because both parties are being driven by the uh, further edges of their parties to stay in exactly the position they are in, especially the House. uh, Number two, uh, will President Trump, should they uh, find a way to resolve their problems and pass legislation, will it uh, be such that he can sign it into law or not? So all of that is still to come. Uh, Kevin Riley, let's turn to another divisive issue. The uh, Stacey Abrams was up on Capitol Hill yesterday. She testified uh, before a subcommittee of the House Judiciary Committee, which was looking into... What Stacey Abrams has become known for since the 2018 election, more than ever before, uh, voting rights and whether or not uh, people were denied the right to vote, whether there is voter suppression in uh, Georgia and other states around the country. Uh, I want to play just a little bit of uh, what Stacey Abrams told the committee and then we'll have a response. Well, we'll we'll then get a response after we've talked about what Abrams had to say. Let's listen.
0: In 2009, under preclearance requirements, the Justice Department summarily rejected exact match as presenting, quote, real, substantial, and retrogressive burdens on voters of color. Post Shelby, however, Mr. Kemp implemented the discredited exact match policies empowered by a lack of Justice Department preclearance. Kemp ushered another iteration of exact match through the state legislature in 2017, leading to 53,000 suspended voter registrations in 2018, 70 percent of whom were black voters who comprise roughly 30 percent of Georgia's eligible voters.
1: So, Kevin, when uh, Abrams talks about Shelby, she's talking about Shelby County uh, uh, v. Holder, which was the Supreme Court uh, decision that uh, stripped Georgia and a number of other states of the previous requirement for pre-clearance of any change in voting law, in voting regulations, uh, had to be cleared through the Department of Justice on the basis that these states had shown in the past an unwillingness to treat all voters equally, essentially, to in fact suppress the vote. That is gone, and one of the things this subcommittee is looking at, and what Abrams wants, is to see some version of preclearance reestablished.
2: Right. I mean, they're pushing hard for that bill, and, um, you know, the voter suppression thing, it is one thing, I'll just tell you from my chair as editor of the paper, that I mean, the two sides on this matter are just, they just can't seem to find any common ground. The narrative on one side is totally different from the narrative on the other side. And th- there are some facts at hand, though. I mean, uh, one of them is there is no question that there are fewer places to vote in the states that were required to do preclearance then there were places to vote before that Supreme Court ruling. We could argue all day long about why that happened, what its implications are and it, but the numbers are there because we've done that story, and it's true in Georgia right. without without question. Fact, the- but not... Well, go ahead. I know it
3: is not not again. Let's go to the point. Just because it's a fact doesn't mean it has anything because most of those were closed in counties run by Democrats. Right. So you'd have to suppose that Democrats are suppressing Democratic voters in the closing of those polling places.
2: Right. I don't know about the most closed by Democrats thing, but I do know Mm -hmm. that. It doesn't necessarily mean that there was an effort to suppress people. That's the argument. Correct. And, of course, mm-hmm. uh, Republicans argue that people can still go to court. They can still file a lawsuit uh, to seek relief or to challenge these things in the state.
4: I, I, I do disagree that these were closed by Democrats. If we're talking about Randolph County, which is, which is a Democratic... Democratic. A, I agree with that, Heath, and, and if, uh, it is a democratically controlled county, but it was a Kemp um, consultant... That w- that that traveled to Randolph County is well documented. He traveled to that traveled, to, uh, that traveled to Randolph County, and that recommended these polls closing. And when he was asked about it, he said, oh, "I have recommended this at hundreds of places around the state. This was is a top down driven effort." come in and say, hey, we can make things easier, do X, Y, and Z. Oh, okay, this is the Secretary of State's office, so we're going to go with it. But uh, the effect was, what it did is it so co- closed, leg- po- it, it closed polling tips. places in Democratic areas. What a coincidence. <laughs> well,
2: <laughs> you, I think you, what he is trying you, to say you, is you, some you, of these you, policies you, that Kemp implemented were passed by a Democratic there, legislature.
3: Absolutely right? passed by a Democratic legislature. Look, this is there is a voter suppression myth that is being portrayed by the... Uh, Democratic candidate, Stacey Abrams, who lost last year's election. You know, the other fact is we had record turnout in the state of Georgia uh, amidst all of this alleged, but not proven in any court of law, voter suppression. Uh, and so, look, the, the, the cynical part of this, which makes be frustrated as, as a consultant is, and Stacey Abrams has alluded to this in her campaign strategy, in order to motivate African-American and other minority participants, you actually use the threat of voter suppression in order to motivate uh, these voters. And I think that this is a just a, doing a detriment to the state. Well,
1: wait, hey, Amy, isn't Heath overlooking the fact that we have now had federal judges in Georgia who have said, who have looked at the... Uh, uh, the information, the evidence that's been presented to them by uh, Stacey Abrams' campaign first and then the organization that she founded to look at at the possibility of suppression. You have federal judges saying, yeah, well, there's something here we need to pursue. So when he says that. They've not found any voter suppression. They've said, the tr- the they've trial said move that the trials can move forward. Beca- well, they
0: did say that they they overruled the rejection of absentee ballots based upon exact match mm-hmm. and on some of the. Temporarily. Uh, and right. how it was that they were filling it. But then it caused those to be counted, right? So I think, I think part of what's difficult is that two things can be true. More people turned out to vote, but we also have evidence that there were, for at least some group of people due to some of these laws, impediments put in their way. And some of the concern is that how the laws are being enforced on the ground... Were not done so in a sort of systematic matter, but rather it was idiosyncratic, right? So, for example, Gwinnett County got sort of a lot of the attention. Their rate of rejecting absentee ballots due to uh, filling it out incorrectly or due to what they were saying was a non-match between signatures was way higher than the rest of the state by orders of magnitude, and that is one of the cases where the court said, "Look, this doesn't seem to be based on anything, and it's there's a lot of idiosyncrasy of who it is that." That's being rejected here. And so I think both of those can be true. And so, well, again, I mean, I guess on the one hand, the sort of answer is that There, there are thankfully not very many people who, in fact, were blocked from voting. But the concern is that there are these laws in place, which, because there's not a lot of sort of strict parameters around how they are enforced, particularly the exact signature match. Right? I don't know about you all, but depending on what document I'm signing, my signature looks wildly different. Sometimes I Mm -hmm. write out all eleven letters of my last name. Sometimes I write out two. I don't know which one uh, is in a document. David,
1: That was one of the things that Abrams uh, emphasized in her testimony was exact match and the problems around it. She was Republicans on the committee, however, said, look, exact match can have as much to do with how somebody fills out their voter registration form, whether they put everything on that form that matches what they say when they come to vote. So, I mean, there is an argument on both sides. But go ahead. I I mean, ultimately,
4: we've had voter suppression in our country since uh, the Emancipation Proclamation and African-Americans were given the right to vote. It's continued. It's persuasive, pervasive. What we see now is you see policies like Exact Match, which suspended 53,000 voting registration applications leading up to the election between Brian Kemp and Stacey Abrams. 80% of those people were people of color. Um, I've had people at the Capitol tell me, well, somebody didn't know how to spell their name. Okay. Also, someone could have da- put the data entry wrong. Also, that name looked like it was the name of minority voter and someone typed a little faster when entering data. The problem is when we point out voter suppression techniques, it overwhelmingly not 55, 60 percent, 80 percent plus affects minority voters. And you know what? People don't always say what they're doing. You have to look below the surface. And that's why these courts have let this get through the motion to dismiss stage and, and in some cases ruled in, ruled in Democratic David, favor.
1: David, we, 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 when we have this conversation, I always think it's important to point out that your session of the legislature and your Republican-dominated uh, legislature did, in fact— pass statute this year that attempted to remedy some of the problems that were exposed during the 2018 cycle. It isn't as if Republicans are ignoring that there are some significant problems, right? Well,
4: specifically the the, the problematic voting provisions we saw taken out of the Georgia Code during the last legislative session, each and every one was being challenged in a court of law, and it looked like the plaintiffs were going to win in that. So Yes. I'll I'll give some credit for taking for taking those provisions out, but they were already flagged. It was already in the process. Mm -hmm. So it was remedial in nature to some. degree.
1: Kevin, I want to pick up on something. Uh, I mentioned Doug Collins a little while ago in relation to the uh, immigration, immigration, uh, emergency relief uh, measure. He also sat on this subcommittee. He and Stacey Abrams were where they were colleagues in the Georgia uh, House, legislative house. And uh, you know, presumably, I think they got along quite well. I know Stacey Abrams was uh, very big on being able to work in a bipartisan way. And I assume Collins was probably one of the people that she would have worked with. But but I want to play a little bit of the sound bite uh, from Doug Collins uh, back and forth with Abrams to talk about a larger point. Um, we're going to pick it up sort of in midstream, but Collins has had a back and forth with her about exact match. He suggested what I said a minute ago that perhaps sometimes exact match problems are because the person who fills out a form may not put their middle name on that form. And then it, they show up at the voting booth and it's there whatever. So we're now going to hear Collins as he ends, finishes up that part of what he had to say and goes on to this.
4: I think that's the problem that I have in your answer because it implies a governmental problem, which also goes back to a bigger issue that I have here. And that is the implication that Brian Kemp, the governor of the state of Georgia, is the person behind all of the problems here. And this has become a bigger question for the state that you and I love. When you had a former presidential or presidential, current presidential candidate come to Georgia and make a statement in your defense and basically said that Stacey Abrams will be governor of Georgia if Georgia wasn't
1: racist. I don't think that's what you want Georgia to be looked at and I don't think that's what I it. So, Kevin, uh, there are people raising that question about whether or not the longer this fight d- uh, drags on, what it does to people's impression of the state of Georgia. Now, here's what I find ironic about this. Abram certainly has said repeatedly that Brian Kemp oversaw a vast voter suppression that it probably cost her the election. On the other hand, she's the very same person who has gone to Los Angeles and said, please don't judge uh, who we are as a state on the basis of our abortion law. Don't pull out your productions from Georgia. So she's kind of been a spokesperson on both sides of what the image of Georgia is. What's your sense as the editor of the major, of the newspaper here, about what this does do? Does Collins make a point? Well, let me begin by saying that Representative Collins was
2: much nicer to me when I testified a couple weeks ago, and I appreciated that. (laughs) He he knows how to get good press out of you. Yeah. uh, But, you know, uh, I think that there's always that danger that uh, the state will be perceived as— I mean, pick your adjective, corrupt, backward, you know, all, all of these things, and, and that's a danger. And I, I never think it's good when a person, whether they're a politician or a business person or a member of the media, for that matter, um, you, you know, degrades their home or their place in order to somehow advance their agenda. I don't. I don't really think Stacey would say that's what she's doing. I think she would say the opposite. That what she's doing is pushing Georgia to be better, to have a higher standard, and to fight off these kinds of perceptions. And. Um, uh, you know uh, we'll probably never agree and on one side we're always going to have the myth, the the argument for voter suppression on the other hand we're going to have the argument for voter fraud right i mean those are the two sides and um i do think though that when people think georgia they think about this the abortion law now they think about this voter thing that they hear about
3: well there's no question i mean i will be less equivocal about this i absolutely don't assign her intent is to do damage to the state but a lot of rational people are looking at this and having very serious disagreements right about the perception that she's continuing to portray if not reestablish that the new york times and other people are way more likely to kind of try to continue to perpetuate this myth of a South mired in the 1960s that there hasn't been progress. When we talk about race relations, in my opinion, kind of growing up post-desegregation in the South and dealing with this all of our lives, I think Stacey Abrams and all of us have a heightened responsibility to make sure we're talking about factual things and we're not trying to use race on either side. Right? Everybody's real quick to condemn Republicans when they think they, they get racist language. I think that Democrats, African-American Democrats, when you use race, right, for, uh, you know, purposes that are to motivate solely for political purposes, well, I think some of what's uh, going on uh, here, uh, I think we've got to be very careful, and I, it is damaging the state's I, reputation.
1: I, I, I got to get to a break, but I do want to get one more, more word in here on this. Amy, I have never, I don't doubt for a second that uh, the Abrams people have been looking methodically at what they see as significant problems with the way in which votes are conducted in Georgia. So I think to say they're using race is something that we ought to be cautious about. But, um, but, but I think, so the real issue here is, um, does, do their concerns trump w- whether the image of the state is at all tarnished mm-hmm. by what they're saying?
0: So as I give a normal academic answer, um, I think the problem is that especially in academia, a lot of times there's gray area, right? There can be very positive things about a place and also negative things. And I think that this is one of those instances where, on the one hand, right, and I think sort of going back to the point, right, turnout was astronomical during the 2018 elections and it was terribly exciting to see. There were also concerns. It was, in fact, right, sort of within particularly particular counties and how, uh, you know, certain laws were being enforced and interpreted. But there were concerns about voter suppression and there were concerns about who was being turned away and how things were being utilized and things like that. And I think both can similarly be true. And I think the other thing that's really hard is that. Georgia is a purple state, but it is not a purple state where everything is mixed together. It really is more like a twist ice cream cone that we have red and we have blue and the colors stay the same. And that's part of the problem, right? There's two wildly different perceptions of what's going on, and both are equally valid and there is truth in both, but they also are very much affecting how people are seeing uh, these discussions and where they're putting it, right? There are, in fact, you know, I think in the same, like on the one hand, there are have been a lot of uh advances made obviously right things are better than they were than the Jim Crow South and all of that on the other hand I think for a number of people of color there's a very real feeling that they still are confronting uh racism both systematically and also on a daily basis with people that they are um interacting with and the you know amounts that you're hearing for example you know students at Grady saying that other people are saying to them you know Saying things like the N-word and stuff like that is really disconcerting in the year 2019. And so we've got to be able to handle both. I gotta think, get,
3: that, I think I it takes away real... from those debates to kind of have this myth out here.
1: All right. Got to uh, get to a break uh, and move on to another set. We're going to spend the last couple minutes of the show. we got maybe uh, eight or nine minutes to do it. Talking a little bit about what's going to happen tonight at the Democratic debate. I don't know if you've heard about it. The Democrats are debating tonight. <laughs> we'll be right back.
5: GPB's fiscal year ends on June 30th. At this critical time, we remind you that listener support makes all the programs you hear on GPB possible. Help us end the year strong, and your contribution will be matched dollar for dollar thanks to a generous challenge from Pembroke Advanced Communications, Mariana Height, and Elizabeth Norman. Please go to gpb.org or call 800-222-4788. And thank you. Ten candidates will take the stage for the first Democratic presidential debate. Expect them to cover topics from health care to income inequality.
0: I am not for free four-year college
5: for all. The best way to get there is by having Medicare for all. I have some concerns with the Green New Deal. Universal
0: and child care for every baby, zero to five.
5: I'm Ari Shapiro. How the candidates compare to one another this afternoon on All Things Considered from NPR News. Four till
2: seven today on GPB and online at gpbnews.org or ask your smart speaker to play GPB.
1: We're back on Political Rewind. Heath Garrett, Amir Steigerwald, Kevin Riley, and David Dreyer are with us on the show today. Uh, Kevin, Democrats start their debate tonight. They've got so many candidates, 20, more than 20, but only 20 who qualified for the debate under the Democratic National Committee rules. They've broken it into two nights. And they had a somewhat random drawing for who would appear on what night. But the way things turned out, it looks like tomorrow night has the bulk of the people who are really polling a bit better. Uh, Tonight, uh, we're going to see people like Elizabeth Warren, Cory Booker, uh, Beto O'Rourke. That The list goes on from there. Um, And there are most people who think that Elizabeth Warren has a big opportunity tonight since she's kind of the standout in uh, this first Group, She's the one who's made some headway in the polls and suddenly seems to be really um, moving upward uh, after a slump earlier in the year. Right. It, to me, the most interesting thing to me, and, and I'm
2: afraid this sounds cynical, but it will be whether it will turn into people knocking each other down. I mean, if you go back to that great big Republican field uh, when, when Trump ran, what really happened? It was the nicknames and the shots he took at people that in the end did make him stand out. Out. I mean, other things happened as the race went on. And then, you know, the reality of the political debate in modern American politics is a simple thing, the soundbite. The good soundbite, the bad soundbite. And who can find a way to do that? I, As a betting man, I wouldn't bet on Elizabeth Warren there because, I mean, she, she talks a lot. And she doesn't say much in just a few words. So to me, it'll be interesting who can grab that opportunity
1: and if there'll be any surprises. Amy, what are you going to be watching for tonight?
0: I agree a lot with what uh, Kevin is saying. And I think some of the problem is that with this many people on the stage, you have very little time to say anything, which means it's incredibly difficult to get substance out and to be able to put that. And I think the other part is with no doc, uh, you know, on my esteemed colleague that. It's harder to report on the substance, too. It's a exactly. lot more difficult right. sure. to write a story talking sure. about what are the differences and also even what are these policy topics than it is to talk about who threw shade on whom and who, as my son would say, burned someone else and gave a we quick have got zinger. more
2: candidates in these two debates than horses in the Kentucky Derby. Yeah, Am I but right that's what,
1: that? what yeah. you are make a point. That's what the sound bites are going to reflect. Uh, the soundbites are going to be
0: who has the biggest zinger. That's going to be what people yeah. are going to click but, but, on, that's what we're going to see on the news, and it's a problem because so we're not going to do a negative. Policy. Well,
2: You think the negative, cheap shot
1: kind of soundbite is what's going to be the thing? Is that is that what I hear you say?
0: I think that's what's going to be reported on.
1: David, do you have a candidate yet? Have you endorsed anybody? I ask every Democrat who comes in whether they have. Have you? I have not. I have not. I'm pretty excited about a lot of people in this race. Yeah. Um, Tonight I'm
4: really going to be looking, we're in a Democratic primary, we have a, a large portion of our electorate is made up of uh, communities of color. Um, tonight there's only going to be about three um, candidates of color that are going to be on the stage, so there's a lot of white people. I'm going to be listening from those folks, and, and, and you can't see me at home, but I'm, I'm a white guy as well. I want to see which of these candidates understands communities of color. Which of these candidates can listen to community color and show that they can be a good, not just a good ally, but a good advocate?
1: So you've got Cory Booker when you talk about people of color. You've got Julian Castro, who is really one of those guys who's made no impact in the polling at all. He's at basically zero in the polls. But he is from Texas, and immigration is going to be a big issue. So we'll see how that plays out. Cory Booker, uh, African-American, obviously had a hard time uh, breaking through in any way. He's an articulate, charming, kind of charismatic uh, member of the United States Senate. It just hasn't worked for him. And I, I guess, is it uh, Tulsi Gabbard, who is, uh, right. is uh, uh, from Hawaii? Um, and so she's an interesting uh, candidate, too. But you're right, this is primarily a white field. Heath, I just can't imagine... That since there is no Donald Trump on that stage to play the role of everything from attacker to court jester to whatever you want to call it, uh, I don't I don't see how anybody takes his place in terms of commanding all the attention tonight.
3: I tell Republicans you say they want to be like Donald Trump or Democrats who are trying to find the, quote, Donald Trump lane in politics, that they're he broke the mold. If you're, if you're worth $3 billion, you had a number one rated television show on for 10 years, you have extreme name recognition. That doesn't exist in this Democratic field in any way, shape, or form going into tonight. So I'm kind of excited that there seem to be 35 candidates for president on the Democratic side. Uh, there are five or six of them I'd really like to see to be the nominee. I'm pretty sure your Democratic listeners don't want to hear from me on who they ought to be, but it is political entertainment. Wrapped up with political policy, wrapped up with political theater, uh, and I don't see uh, how over the next forty-eight hours anybody's going to break out. All right.
1: What if you had a if you had a candidate in this race as their strategist? What do you tell yeah, them? I
3: mean, a, a they need to be themselves. That way they've got to play their game. You are trying to find the twenty-second phraseology that might get you the hook on CNN or MSNBC or the NBC Nightly News. But you need to in Democrat, you need you know, you've got to have a substantive policy. Don't to be donald trump or something you're not this early it's way too early to be for people to be throwing hail marys
1: so let me throw out uh, a media side on this kevin uh it's hard enough if you've got 10 candidates tonight 10 candidates tomorrow night for the candidates to get anywhere uh but for the for those of us who are out there hoping to learn more about uh, who they are It strikes me NBC hasn't done anybody any favors. Rather than having, say, one or two people guiding an entire conversation, they've put their whole stable of personalities up. This, to them, is as much an opportunity to show off as it is for the candidates. And I think in the long run, that's not the best way to focus a debate. Right, I,
2: I. this is, uh, I mean, in the end, it's going to be uh, like a reality show. I mean, I hate to say it, I hate to say it, and I And I really hope that eventually we get to a point where the conversations are substantive enough about policy where people are really going to have to think about who they might want to support and why. But, uh, yeah, I mean, so what are we going to do? I mean, we're going to ask a question, and we're going to hope that 10 people remember what the question was and, and actually answer it. That's not going to happen.
1: All right. I said yesterday on the show, I say it again today, maybe there'll be some movement today, but there's so many people in this field that even somebody who's, I've been involved in politics as a journalist for 40 years, I still can't focus on these candidates. I'm hoping, Amy, tonight, I'll begin the process. I
0: think that would be good. I mean, I think the, the unfortunate part for all the candidates is that in many ways, something that's short like this what it most likely is going to do is start to weed people out, as opposed to weeding people in,
1: mm-hmm.
0: right? So it gives you the chance, like it's it's going to be about the mess ups. Okay, but um, nobody's
1: going to drop out after their performance tonight or tomorrow gonna talk, but night. they're going to weed out
0: with the voters. Okay, right? I think we're we're likely to see that. And the one thing that I'll bet on is we're likely to hear the phrase "I have a plan."
4: <laughs>
2: I may just watch
1: the College World Series. I have to be honest. <laughs> <laughs> oh, oh, oh. that's the nice thing about being the editor. You have people who can watch it for exactly. you. Exactly. Um, all right. We've only got a couple of seconds left. Uh, I just wanted to mention a couple of quick items that uh, are, by the way, uh, we, we've... I said in the headlines of the show, we'd be talking about Lucy McBath and some of the issues she's had with reporting her uh, campaign finances. We simply don't have time for that. We will park that until Uh, Friday show or maybe Monday show, because the issue is not going away. Suffice it to say, she suddenly is reporting that she has assets much, much larger than what she had previously reported. And and we'll talk about that at a show when we have an opportunity to get into it in more depth. Uh, It is interesting. Betty Price, the wife of Tom Price, the former HHS secretary, who had to leave that job, has said she's getting back into... Uh, the race for legislature, she lost her seat. You're not representing her, are you, Heath? Betty Price? I am not. Uh, she lost to a Democrat. What are the chances that that seat's going to return to Republican control? Because that's going to be the question for all legislative races in Georgia.
3: Uh, yeah, these suburban races, there are chances for these Republicans to retake a few of them.
1: David? David? You imagine that Republicans in the suburbs are going to get back what they've either lost or are they going to lose ground uh, this uh, uh, coming year? I I think the candidates that took those
4: suburban seats on the Democrat side are great candidates that had well-run campaigns and knew how to reach voters directly at their door. Um, People like... Um, uh, Mary Robichaux and Betty Price District, Angelica Couch. These are are good people. I bet they're going to stay.
1: All right. You got the last word because you you are the newest panelist uh, on Political (laughs) Rewind. Thank you, David Dreyer, for being with us. Amy, we're glad you're back. You too, Heath and Kevin Riley. Thank you for being back here today. That's it for us today. Of course, we're not on the air tomorrow, but we will be back with you on Friday with another Political Rewind. Hope to see you then.